You never quite know how they're going to exit. Sometimes they cheer and run, and sometimes they're like quiet and obedient, and I'm not saying that cheering is a bad thing, but today was quiet. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, we continue our series here in uh, this great first book of the Bible, the book of Beginnings. I'm going to read for us just the first six verses. This is God's Word. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. Where would we be without your word? We would be left to philosophize about who you might be and whether you might be and what you might be like and how we might be reconciled to you, how we might know you. We would be left to ponder and think, and each man would do what is right in his own eyes. But you have given us your word, and we are grateful. And this morning, as we have it open to Genesis chapter 26, we ask that you would minister to us, that as we see Isaac, who is not the most noteworthy of patriarchs, one who is kind of stuck in the middle between his father and his son. I pray that we would see here what you have for us. You don't include things in your word that have no meaning to us. You have communicated to us in this chapter. And so I pray that you would bless us this morning, that we would seek and we would find what you have for us today in your dealings with Isaac in this chapter. So we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Isaac is uh, not the most remarkable man, as the title of our message today says. If you look at the balance of Genesis and you look at the number of chapters given to each character in Genesis, Isaac uh, barely, barely deserves a, a note, a footnote. So much time is spent with Abraham from 
from really chapter 12 all the way through uh, where we are now, so much time has been focused on that great patriarch. And, and you think, well, okay, that makes sense because he's uh, establishing new things and God is making promises to him and he's the first and whatnot. And then you move on and look at uh, all of the, the time that is spent on Jacob. And you think, well, okay, so he's important because of these reasons. His name is going to be changed to Israel. And, and of course, the nation of Israel will be named after him and he'll have the 12 sons who are the 12 tribes and on and on. And and, and then you look at how much time is given to, to Joseph, and, and you think, okay, well, maybe there's reason for this and that. But then you look at Isaac. He gets basically a chapter. And in this chapter, he's not even really the hero. <laughs> he's kind of like the middle child of the patriarchs. And I'm a middle child myself, and you can always tell a middle child because we're usually the bitter ones. <laughs> for reasons that we don't need to talk about today. But Isaac kind of seems like the middle child here. He kind of, <laughs> all the middle children in the room are shaking their head. <laughs> Why'd you even mention that, Pastor? <laughs> but Isaac kind of seems like that. So much time is spent on his father. So much time is spent on those who come after him. And, and so little time is spent on him. But as we see in this first paragraph, what was read before we started our time this morning we see that though he is an unre unremarkable man, the remarkable blessings of God that were promised to Abraham that were so momentous, that took uh, such center stage in, uh, in the story of Abraham and uh, really begins to shape our understanding of how God is going to work with his people, how he's going to bring redemption and, and all of that. Uh, those promises made to Abraham will now be brought over and be given to Isaac his son. And so uh, we're going to uh, think about these blessings that we have here and, and uh, compare them to what we see over in Genesis chapter 12, which is where uh, the promises of God were initially given to Abraham. And so let's go ahead and turn there. Keep your finger in chapter 26, but we want to go back. The wording here is so similar. The author clearly intends us to make the connection between these two passages. And so we're going to a read how it all started with Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. Now, the Lord said to Abram, remember his name wasn't even changed yet, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we continue on down in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So you noticed a great similarity between the promises that were made all these years earlier to Abram when he was not even in the land yet, what God had told him to do what God had promised him that he would do. And now we come to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and we see that many of those same blessings are repeated. And that we see there in, in the beginning of verse 3, I will be with you and will bless you. There's a promise of blessing that God himself is going to be with Isaac, and he's going to bless him. And if you remember, we looked at those promises 
that God made to Abraham, and we saw that blessing figured prominently not only in the promises made to Abraham, but uh, continuing on through the rest of Genesis, that the blessing of God was promised to Abraham, to his offspring, and here we have it repeated specifically to Isaac himself, where he says, I will be with you and will bless you. So just as I blessed your father Abraham, as I promised him, I would bless him. Isaac, I will bless you. Now, how encouraging would that have been for Isaac? You know, Isaac has grown up in the shadow of, of his father and all that's gone on there and, and Ishmael before him and all the struggle and all of that. And, and uh, what an encouragement it would have been. What a, a, a new uh, light in his life it would have been for Isaac to receive the word from God that I will bless not just your dad and those connected with your dad, but you. What an encouragement that must have been for him. But he continues in the second half of verse 3 there, to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Remember how it all started. There was a famine in the land. This wasn't the famine that had occurred during the days of Abraham. But Isaac went to Gerar. He was traveling down. And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt. Don't go down to Egypt. The land of Gerar was, was within the land of Canaan. It was kind of a borderland, but, but it seems like Isaac may have been on his way down to Egypt. We don't really know. That's what his father had done when the famine came as he, he went down into Egypt and God appears to him and says, don't do that, stop, stay here, settle in these lands. I'm going to give these lands to you and to your offspring. These lands where you are, so why would you want to leave Isaac? And even when we think about uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac is the only one who spends all of his time within the land. Abraham was called from a different country. And after he got there, remember, he left and went down to Egypt and and he left the land at, at various times. And, and Jacob, of course, is going to go to a far land. He's going to uh, raise his family there and whatnot. So he leaves the land and comes back to it. But Isaac is the one who was there the whole time. And God makes this promise to him, to you and your offspring. I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. What I told him, I tell you. Just pausing for a second here as a as a father myself, and I think about the blessings that, that I have received, the things I have seen God do, the way the Lord has, uh, many ways the Lord has worked in my life, and don't we want our children to see that same thing? We want it to be passed on to them. We want to see them be blessed by God even more than we have. And here Isaac gets to receive that promise from God himself, that this land, I want you to stay in it. It's going to be yours. It's going to belong to your offspring. And so we have the promise of blessing, just like we did with Abraham. We have the promise of the land, just like we did with Abraham. And in verse 4 of chapter 26, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Then we'll give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we have the promise of blessing. We have the promise of of land, and we have the promise of multiplied offspring. The same promises that God made to Abraham, he's passing on to the next 
generation, including those offspring. There will be a seed that will be passed on. And we've seen that all throughout the book of Genesis, seed really has been a theme, hasn't it? All the way back uh, to the creation account in chapter 1 where we saw uh, plants being created and how did they reproduce according to, following according to their kind by seed, all right? And so we saw that seed is a, is, is a part of it all the way in, back in chapter 1 and then, of course, in chapter 3 where sin has entered the picture and how is deliverance going to come now that Adam and Eve have, have partaken of that fruit, now that sin has entered the picture, how is there going to be redemption? How can things be rectified? Well, it's by means of a seed, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The promise will come by means of a seed. And so that seed promise was all important. They had been anticipating, no doubt, thinking about this seed and thinking about the blessing of redemption that God would give by means of the seed. And so for that promise to come to Isaac as well, that, that I, I will multiply your seed, would have been a huge encouragement. And then we saw that that, not just a multiplication of seed to him, that's not just to, to bless him and his people, but in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in your offspring, is the way he puts it in verse 4, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How often do we think of blessing coming to us and, and then we kind of uh, revel in it and, and rejoice in it, even thank God for it and keep it right here? Because <laughs> I like to have it, right? And we don't think about how we can pass it on, but that is the very purpose uh, wrapped up in God's blessing and promise of the seed to Abraham and now to Isaac is blessing not just to you, not just to your offspring, but through them to all families of the earth. And so we have a repetition of these same blessings that have, that have, have been with us kind of guiding and shaping the story of Abraham to this point and will continue to guide and shape the rest of the book of Genesis and really the rest of the, the Bible will focus on these same concepts of God's blessing in these ways, particularly that seed blessing. But I want us to notice something different. We're looking at the blessings that have been promised. I want us to notice why those blessings come to Isaac. Look at verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Notice the, the blessing of God, the promises of God don't come because Isaac had obeyed. It was the obedience of another that resulted in the blessing to the recipient. Isaac is not the one who has obeyed, and we're going to see the story continue that that he struggles with that. But because of God's relationship with Abraham, because of another, Abraham himself, because of his obedience, because of his walk with God, Isaac would receive the blessing. And that is so much the case with us, isn't it? We're going to develop this more later on, but we we want to catch it right here as we pass by that the reason Isaac was blessed was not because Isaac was a good boy, but because of Abraham, Isaac receives blessing. And so we continue on through our story. We're going to see blessings despite fear and sin. So we look at verse 6. 
Isaac settles in Gerar. And then when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he dug into the family archives of how you deal with such, such problems. When people come to you with this hard question about, uh, about your beautiful wife, how are you supposed to answer this question? And he says, she is my sister. Abraham did that twice, and now Isaac is following suit. Things are not starting off very well. She is my sister, he said, for, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And so he leads with the same lie, and it's, it's rooted and it's grounded in his very fear. Now, if you, <clears throat> if you pause too long between paragraph 1 and paragraph 2 there, you might think, well, what a wimp. He's scared again. Right? He's, he's like his dad. He's fearful. But when you read it together with paragraph 1, you see the absurdity of his fear. Right? What were the promises? I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. Your, your, your descendants will be multiplied they will receive this land. And Isaac is scared of dying. Did he not make the connection to what God had said? Did he not make the connection that God had promised to bless him and now he's scared of being cursed? That God had promised all of these things and now he's scared that uh, he's going to die and God won't be able to keep his promises. I don't know his thought process exactly, but it was because of fear he thought they were going to kill him. But when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. That's a euphemism. He was, he was involved in his, with his wife in some way that made evident Abimelech was able to figure out. He put two and two together, and he said, he called to Isaac, and he said, Verse 9, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. And so Abimelech, who's the one Isaac feared, Isaac thought he's such a twisted and evil man, and this is such a twisted and evil place that that uh, when they see that my wife's beautiful, they're just going to off me and take my wife. And so he lies. And that very man, those very people, the king of those people who, whom he thought would be uh, such an evil man that he would kill Isaac to take his wife, he's the righteous one in the picture. He says, what, why did you tell me she was your sister? She's clearly your wife. So Abimelech is uh, the righteous one in this picture. What is this that you have done to us? He says in verse 10, One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. He's aware that such a thing would be evil, that taking another man's wife as evil would have brought guilt upon the people. Now, this is most like, well, it's a, it's a question. About 40 years have passed since Abraham was down there. And uh, the, the king, uh, whose name was Abimelech, uh, goes through a very similar thing. But Abimelech 
is, is a word that means something like um, my father is God or God my father or something like that is king, okay? Um, uh, I'm sorry. Melech is king. Ab, uh, Abi is my father. So the king is, is uh, my father or my father the king, right? And so that could be a title like you think of Caesar, right? Which Caesar do I mean? Or if I say Pharaoh, which Pharaoh do I mean? It's a title for the office. And it's possible that uh, this was not the same Abimelech who had dealt with Abraham. But nevertheless, we have Abimelech here, and he's been the righteous one in this picture. He's the one who has called out Isaac for his sin. And isn't that, isn't that the worst when a Christian gets called out for sin by a non-Christian? And I, I think that's a little of what is going on here, that Isaac is, is, uh, is being instructed by this king, and it's possible he was a believer. I don't think so. But he's being instructed by this foreign king that he thought would be so evil. And more than instructed, we see in verse 11, Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And so Isaac went down there fearing death from this very king, and that very king ends up issuing a decree that if anyone touches Isaac, that man will be put to death. Abimelech ends up being his protection. So we see that Isaac is given to paranoia, like his father was given to paranoia, and deception in the same way. Well, then we see some problems arise because of this. It might seem like uh, the problem's taken care of, uh, but we're going to see that other problems uh, will develop, and those problems have to do with envy. Look at the next paragraph. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, there's a famine in the land had driven him down to Gerar, but it said he had been there quite a while before this happened. But nevertheless, here Isaac sows, and he reaps not thirtyfold, and not sixtyfold, but he reaps a hundredfold. That's a return on investment. He's growing wealthy at a rapid rate. The Lord blessed him. Verse 13, and the man became rich. The idea there is richer and richer, and he gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And so God has blessed him in enormous ways here. He's in this land, and he's gone down there initially, he's sinned, etc., he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. He's grown so rich, and here he is a foreigner, and he's grown so rich that the locals envy him. When we lived in, in Russia, we were in very southern Russia, and so there were bordering nations just to the south of us and Ukraine there, and, and so there would, uh, there would often be people from other nations who would live in the city we lived in in Russia, and of particular interest were the, Ar- the Armenians. Armenians would move to town. They would come in. Armenia is a, 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 a pretty poor country. It's a very small country, and these Armenians would come in, move in, and, and live there, and, and they would suddenly be the richest guy on the block. Not suddenly, but it seemed like it. They would move into these neighborhoods and buy the fanciest house, and, and so the Russians uh, many of uh, I would hear Russians talk about this, and, and they would think, how can it be that these people, these foreigners move in, and they become wealthy in our land? They become wealthy in our city, and here I am, a Russian, and I'm just, you know, doing my thing, and I'm a, I, I haven't climbed the ladder at all. Well, of course, these Armenians 
would, uh, would come in and they would work like dogs and they would do business and they were, they were shrewd and they were frugal and they would, they would work uh, and they, they, until they grew uh, rich right there in the midst of all these Russians. And, and so often the Russians wouldn't observe why that was the case and the Armenians weren't doing anything wrong except becoming rich by working hard, being frugal, being shrewd businessmen. Well, here the envy that, that arises because of Isaac and his wealth is similar to that envy that arose amongst uh, the occasional Russian watching them, that, that uh, there's a problem. This foreigner has come to town, and with him he brought his whole entourage. It's not as if Isaac and his wife were the only ones who came down there, brought their whole entourage, and while they're there, they, they, they plant and they harvest, and, and they become super rich so that the people envy them. The blessings of God on Isaac result in problems, difficulties with their neighbors. And so you see envy arise out of this. Now what's interesting is liberal scholars will read this passage. will read about Isaac and going down to Gerar. You've got the same place. You've got Abimelech. You've got the same name. You've got the same situation. It's a famine. He lied about his wife. And they think, well, see, these things all indicate that this is just a retelling of the same story. It's a repackaging of the same story. And there are a lot of things in common. But it's interesting that in those other stories, remember when Abraham and his wife went down to Egypt, they received wealth from the king. They were gifted all of these things. And the same thing in, Isaac's pre, or in Abraham's previous dealing with Abimelech is that they were given these gifts. They grew rich as a result of the gifting of the people. But in this instance, this wasn't the gifting that comes from or the blessing that comes from, or the wealth that comes from other people giving it to you. It comes because you planted a crop, and the crop grew and produced a hundredfold. There's no other hand in the blessing of Isaac than the hand of God Himself, who's the one who causes crops to grow. So, you have God Himself already beginning to bless He promised in the beginning of the chapter that he's going to bless Isaac, and now he is beginning to bless him already. And the blessing that he gives him actually begins to uh, cause problems. So the Philistines envied him, verse 15. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. So there are these wells that are going to come back later on, and they had stopped them up. They had filled them. Verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So here Isaac has grown so wealthy. He's grown so mighty and so powerful that not only do the people envy him, but Abimelech himself wants him to go away because he's a threat. So he sends Isaac away. You see, the blessing of God is actually causing certain problems for Isaac, causing difficulty with the people around him. He's dealing with problems of envy. And now uh, we turn to the next section, not only blessings despite fear and sin. So God was blessing. If you remember, uh, the first thing out of Isaac's mouth when he got to Gerar was a lie. And yet God blessed him. God blessed him because of the faithfulness of his father Abraham. God blessed him. Blessed him so much that it was actually going to cause other problems with the people around them. 
And uh, we see, we'll kind of skip over this problem with the wells that we have there, uh, starting in verse 17. Uh, you've got, uh, they're traveling on looking for, uh, looking for wells, and they, they find a well, they dig it, uh, but the Philistines come and they fight over it, so they go and dig another one, and they fight over it, and then they, they come to another one, and finally, uh, down in uh, verse 22, he moved on from there and dug another well. This is the third. They did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Wide open spaces is the name of that well, okay? Finally, we've got room to grow. And so that's what we see happening there is finally they move on. The well issue has been dealt with. And from there he went to, verse 23, went to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night so he's, he's gone to Beersheba. We've read about that before with Abraham himself. And the Lord appears to him. This is the second time. And he says to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So again, we have the promise of God from God himself being given to Isaac, and it's based upon the virtue, the value, the merit of another, that Isaac gets to have these blessings. That's a recurring theme. That's a recurring theme in Scripture in general, but certainly in this passage right here. And so we see Isaac's response there in verse 25. So he built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So once again, Isaac receives from God this promise that I will continue to bless you. Yes, you've been kicked out. Yes, you've been run out of this place because you're more powerful than the local people. But I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will be with you, bless you, multiply your offspring, and I will do so because of my great love for Abraham. Because of Abraham's merit, I will bless you. And so what an encouragement that would be having been run out of town. The promise of God's blessing. But then we conclude here, 26 and, and following, we read about this pact that he's going to have with Abimelech. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar. You remember Abimelech is the one who kicked him out? But he goes to him, and he brings with him Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, it's interesting to note, if, if you read this story in parallel with the story where Abraham goes down to the same place and he has dealings uh, with Abimelech, later Abimelech comes to him and he brings with him Phicol, but he doesn't bring Ahuzath. What's the point? I don't know exactly, but I think the point is that this Abimelech was more intimidated even by Isaac than Abimelech earlier had been intimidated by Abraham. He brought a larger entourage. He's puffing out his chest more. He's, he's trying to be more significant when he's dealing with Isaac himself. And so he brings Ahuzath, he brings Phicol. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me seeing that you hate me? and you've sent me away from you. You kicked me out. Why are you back? Verse 28, and they said to him, catch this, we see plainly 
that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. So Abimelech, this king, the king of the Philistines, king of Gerar, he comes to Isaac and he wants to make a covenant with him. He's the one seeking covenant with Isaac. And what's the point of the covenant? That you will do us no harm. That you, Isaac, we might think of as a vagabond, the one, the traveler who doesn't have a home base, the one who came down because of the famine and now has left again. We might, we might think of you know, Isaac as the one who lives in tents and not a big deal. But here he's been blessed by God to such a degree that he intimidates people when he lives in their land. And even when he moves to another land, that king comes to him and says, please don't hurt us. You see the blessing of God on Isaac? And by the way, we hardly see it. It's not like we see Isaac uh, going out and accomplishing some daring do. But we see the blessing of God in his life to such an extent that Abimelech would seek this covenant, would seek this pact with him, wanting peace. Make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, verse 29, just as we've not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. You see, the mantle has been passed to Isaac. And not only has it been passed, and it seems like Isaac is the lesser, that Abraham is the greater patriarch, and Isaac is an also ran. He's, he's an afterthought, he seems like. But you see, the blessing of God, which started in a magnificent way with Abraham, has grown even greater with Isaac. This is a promise that is not diminishing so that Hopefully, it will eke out a fulfillment before it you know, evaporates to nothing. It's exactly the opposite, that the promises made to Abraham have grown so that by the time we get to Isaac, we see a greater blessing on Isaac. We see improvement. We see God blessing him in such a way that even the unbelievers around him, even surrounding nations will come to him and say, you, Isaac, are now the blessed of the Lord. You will be a blessing to the nations around you. And so we'll see this continue later on. We see that there's a nation established in the land hundreds of years from now and that eventually there's a, a monarchy, a kingdom established and, and there will arise a king in Israel who is so wise that people will travel from distant lands to hear the wisdom of Solomon because they know He's the blessed of the Lord. And the nations come to Him and they want to ask, they want to learn of Him, they want to, they want to hear what He has to say, they want to experience what is this blessing of God on such a nation, on such a man. So you see that it grows, that expectation grows. And of course, that continues on because right in the life of, of Solomon, you have it already go south, right? That, that the very chapter after, when you're reading uh, reading the story of, of Solomon, and you hear about his wisdom, and you have the visit uh, of, of uh, the, the foreign queen. She comes and she asks questions and puts these questions to him. She's amazed, and she goes away, and he's so rich, and he's so wonderful. The very next chapter, it starts going downhill, and it never achieves that level again in the entire story of the Old Testament, of the nations coming to learn of wisdom, to learn of what this blessing of God is like. 
we begin to understand that it won't be nations like kings on behalf of their entire nations or queens on behalf of their entire nations coming to hear of a nation and the wisdom of a nation and their king. But there will be one who's born lowly, born in a manger, who would, who would grow up uh, in relative obscurity, who would teach and preach and heal, who would demonstrate in his life by his words, by his miracles, and by his death, and by his resurrection, that he is the seed promised in the beginning to crush the head of the serpent. And you and I represent those nations coming to him to learn from the one who is the blessed of the Lord wisdom and life and insight. And you and I are the ones who, who uh, are a little bit like Abimelech, that we come to a place where we realize that uh, we need to go to him. We need a pact with him. And we realize that this Jesus, the representative of God himself, the, the seed of the woman promised in the beginning and, and, and now raised and in, in, in glory, ascended to the right hand of the Father, even now he's the one who is a threat to everyone who rejects him. He's, he's a threat because he is righteous and holy. And so the nations, the unbelieving world around, looks at Jesus, and they, they might like to stand back from afar and say, he's got wisdom, and he was a good teacher, and he did all these things, and uh, wouldn't you like to be like Jesus? But as soon as they get close enough to see what he said, where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. When they get close enough to hear that, they become intimidated. That Jesus, they don't want to hear about. That Jesus, they don't want to be around. He frightens them. He scares them. That they might recognize from a distance that he has the blessing of God on him. And, and that's good and generic and okay for you and I can learn some lessons. But when they get close enough and, and the, the reality of his righteousness and their unrighteousness undoes them so that they become like Isaiah the prophet when he saw the Lord. He said, woe is me, I am undone. Or like Peter when he observed Jesus' miraculous um, um, powers. He said, he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And this morning, it may be that we have some in our midst who, uh, hearing these words, hearing about God who is righteous, who is almighty, who is sovereign, who has authority over all things, who created us, who... who works right in history, who has power and authority from, from, the, 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 from, from tsunamis and hurricanes right down to the heart of man, that when you hear about Him and when you hear that He says to you, you must, you must come to me, that's scary. It might be a, a frightening moment. It might be a time when 
You don't really uh, want that. You like the idea of God at a distance. God who says true and wise things, uh, perhaps in the book of Proverbs or something about how we ought to live our lives or parent our children. But as long as He's safe and out there and He doesn't make demands on me, that's okay. But folks, the fact is that God is our Creator and He is the one with whom we have to do. And so as we as we hear the truth preached, as we hear what He is like, as we hear of His perfect standard, we begin to be uncomfortable. As we begin to see what the blessing of God really looks like, that it has to do with, with holiness, that it has to do with, with Jesus Himself, we, we, we can become a little bit like Peter. And my encouragement to you this morning, if you're one who is on the outside, if you're one who has heard about this Christ today, heard about who is our God, and, and, and you're uncomfortable, and you'd rather He stay out there, thank you very much. I want to tell you that there will come a day when, when there will be an interaction between you and Him, and that day is judgment, when you will no longer be able to keep Him at bay. You'll no longer to be able to uh, keep your thoughts from Him, but you will answer to Him when He says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you will answer one way or another, whether you believe in Him or not, whether you are comfortable with your answer or not, there will come a time when you will have to do with Him. And in that time, sin will be judged. And that sin that each of us is born with and we've committed, we laugh at Isaac and his and his lying, but we've all told lies. We, we laugh at Isaac and his fear that drives him to do things that are dishonoring to God, and we've all done the same thing. And we could go down the list, and we see that, that each of us is sinful, and there will come a time when, when there will be no option but to answer to God for your sin. And the judgment of God for anything less than perfect obedience to His law is wrath, eternal wrath. And so, it might be uncomfortable to think about God in this situation. It will be unbearable to encounter Him in that situation. And in that time, the only ones who will receive entrance into God's presence, the only ones who will receive God's smile of favor and a welcome from Him, well done, good and faithful servant, are those who have the righteousness of another. Those who, who are blessed not because of what they have done, but because of what another has done. And so we come to our elements today and we look at the body and the blood of Christ. And we remember why we celebrate these things. That this represents the righteousness of another for us. This represents the sacrifice, the payment of another for us. This represents another willingly taking on the punishment that we deserve and doing so for us. And so as we look at these elements and we look at the, the bread and we look at the cup, 
my exhortation to you who, who don't know what you will answer the Lord on that day is that you have opportunity today to plead the righteousness of another for your account. You have the opportunity today to look away from yourself, to look away from your own deserts, your own merits, to look to what Christ has accomplished. And there in Him you see one who was always obedient where you've not been, one who kept the righteous standard of God's law, who has all righteousness, and who died for you to take upon Himself the penalty that you deserve. And my, my prayer today and my hope today is that you will look to that Christ, that you will look away from your own merit, and you will look to Jesus and His accomplishment, which when you trust in Him, when you look to Him and cling to Him alone, you find His righteousness given to you and your sin placed upon Him and executed. So that when you come to that great question, why should I let you into my heaven? The answer is Jesus and what He did for me. So may in that day we all claim the righteousness of another, what we call an alien righteousness, His righteousness. So we're going to celebrate this uh, uh, even now. So uh, men who are going to serve, if you would come forward, please. As they're coming, it's important for us to think about what uh, this means and, and who it is that celebrates this supper. We call it the Lord's Supper because it is the offering, the remembering of what it is Christ has done for us, that we are bringing before ourselves because the Lord commanded us to do so in a very practical way that this and what this represents in the, uh, the sacrifice of Christ Himself is why we get to have life, is why we get to have peace with God, is because of what this represents here. And so, if you don't know Christ, if, you, if you're still not sure how you would answer that question before God, let these elements pass by and think about what it is we've said. Think about uh, your need for the righteousness of another because you don't have a righteousness of your own, nor could you ever achieve it. Your past record of failure tells us that. So if that's, if that's you and you don't yet know Christ, watch these elements pass and think about what we've said and then come talk to me afterwards. But Christians, we come to the Lord's Supper. And first... If we could take up the bread, please. The bread represents the body of Christ, broken for us, giving up Himself as the payment of the penalty for our sin that we deserve to pay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And so as we pass these elements, as we're going to in just a moment, you'll, you'll, you'll take a piece of bread 
and you'll hold on to it and we'll partake uh, together later on. I want you to spend some time in quiet meditation and in prayer thinking about your need for that sacrifice. Thinking about uh, your own sin that has caused uh, the need for this. And I want you to confess that sin to God Himself. And when you do so, you find that His payment is enough. And that sin is paid for, but I want us to think about, I want us to think about what, uh, what it cost Him, this life that we have, that He gladly paid for us, that He took upon Himself the punishment for our sins. Let's pray. Father, as we have here the bread that we're going to partake of in a moment, we are so grateful for Jesus, our Savior. We recognize more and more our own need for forgiveness of sins, and, and here Jesus has accomplished that by standing in our place, hanging on that tree for us, bearing your wrath that, that we won't, that we might have life. And Father, even as we think of our own sin and confess it, we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, that our sin is not the final word. He is. And we pray in His name. Amen.
Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. If we could take up the cup, please. As we pass the cup, let's spend some time in quiet reflection and contemplate the joy that is contained in it, that though it represents blood, it represents life for you and me at the expense of His life. That because He has shed His blood for us, we who are in Christ have forgiveness, peace with God, and life, and joy, and confident hope of eternity. And this is because of what Christ has accomplished for us in this new covenant, which is ours by what He has accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the blood of Christ spilled for us, that He, the obedient one, also took the punishment for, for us who are disobedient, that He fulfilled, that He kept Your Word, and He has it the record of that to give to us by faith that we, by looking to Him because of what He has accomplished, we get to have peace with You. We get to have Your smile and favor because of another. Thank You for Jesus, our Savior, and His blood spilt for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a joy for us to be able to celebrate this. And Christian, this is a reminder for us every time we celebrate this that in Christ our sins are forgiven. I think we carry them around. We take them with us from place to place and we try to forget about them thinking that's the way for our sin to be done away and it is done away in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us that we just celebrated. So Christian, your sins are forgiven in Christ. What a, what a blessing that we can come to Him, confess our sin, leave Him there, and walk away. And so, what an encouragement it is. Men, you can have a seat, please. What an encouragement for us to be able to celebrate that. We can taste the bread, we can taste that cup, and be reminded of what it is Christ has done for us. I want to encourage us uh, as well. This is the Sunday of the month where we take a benevolence offering, and you can do that at the end uh, of the service now. Um, there's a box in the back. There's a plate in the foyer. That's the same place, by the way, regular offering goes, but on a benevolence Sunday, if you'll just designate this is for benevolence, then we can separate uh, those two from one another. I would remind you as well about the um, uh, help that we want to give for the Christians in Pakistan for what it is uh, they are going through. But um, what a joy for us to be together. I want to I pray for us. I want to send you out encouraged. I want to remind you um, after I pray that I'm going to be down here in front. Uh, if, you want, if you have questions, you want to come talk to me, I want to make myself available for that. There will be another family here to uh, pray with you as well if you want to pray with them. So let's, uh, let's pray together and, and conclude our time. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who is righteous, the one whose righteousness we can count on. We have none of our own to offer. And it is better for us when we realize we have none of our own to offer. We have Jesus, our Savior, who has given himself for us, and we rejoice in him. And may we go forth from this place with these songs on our hearts, with his name on our lips, with the joy that is ours in Christ uh, into our lives. May we take the gospel with us and invite many other in as well that they would hear of Christ that they would come to know peace with you through him. So we rejoice in these truths, and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.